On behalf of Hospice of the Piedmont, welcome to the E-Series, an educational podcast aimed at engaging our community, exploring relevant topics, and educating about ways to connect with our organization. My name is Ryan Biagini, and I am your host. Today we continue this installment of the E-Series with Conversations in Care, Conquering Fears, a conversation between CEO of Hospice of the Piedmont, Trent Cockrum, and Hospice Social Worker, Caroline Oxford. Let's get started. Trent joined Hospice of the Piedmont in 2013 as the organization's third CEO since its founding in 1981. Prior to joining the organization, Trent worked for 16 years in long-term care with Triad Medical Services in Yadkinville, overseeing operations and management of a statewide network of almost 2,000 long-term care beds. Most recently, he led the organization in navigating a merger with Hospice of Randolph, Thanks for being with us today again, Trent. My pleasure. Joining Trent is Caroline Oxford. Uh, Caroline attended Appalachian State University and earned a Master of Social Work from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School. During her graduate studies, she focused on helping congregations to better engage issues of illness and death. She has worked as a licensed clinical social worker with Hospice of the Piedmont for the past six years. Thank you as well for being with us, Caroline. Without any further ado, I will hand over this discussion to you, Trent. Thank you, Ryan. Caroline, it's great to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you today. And, uh, you know, I just want to set the stage a little bit for our conversation you know, this is the second installment of our e-series uh, for the fall called Conversations in Care, and this one in particular is about conquering fears. Um, you know, part of what I hope we'll be able to achieve today for the folks who are watching us or listening to us um, at a later time or watching us even at a later time is that we'll begin normalizing the topic of death and dying. You know, dying is as much a part of living as life itself. You know, it's there are the two, uh, two things that are inevitable in life are growing old and dying. They're simply the two things that we are unable to avoid or uh, control. And oftentimes, you know, we delay conversations about death and dying. And today we're going to talk a little bit about emotional considerations, um, and particularly as it relates to your role as a social worker. And if we have some time, we'd, it'd be great if we could explore a bit of the spiritual considerations too, given the fact that you also hold a master's degree in divinity. Um, but you know, before we delve into some of those more complicated considerations, Caroline, you know, I think it's important for folks who are watching us today to have a good understanding of what social workers actually do. Now you have a master's degree in social work and you're also a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and, but when we oftentimes think about social workers, um, it may conjure a lot of different thoughts in people's minds. And might you talk about what some of those are and then, you know, could you maybe explain a little bit about what you do and your role um, in our organization, Hospice the Piedmont and our affiliate Hospice of Randolph? Sure, um, thanks for having me, Trent. Um, so you're right, social workers, um, there's maybe a lot of different ideas about what social workers do. Certainly if all you know of a social worker is what you've seen maybe on TV shows, you think we only work 
for departments of social services, um, child protective services, foster care, that type of thing. But in reality, um, social workers do do those things. But in reality, um, social workers work in a very wide range of fields. Um, we work in schools, we work in mental health settings, we work in healthcare, and um, of course that includes here um, at Hospice of the Piedmont. And so um, specifically in this role, um, in my work, I how I introduce my role to patients and families that I'm meeting for the first time is um, really to say that we can think about my role sort of as, as having two different parts. The first part being just providing added emotional support to patients and families. Um, we certainly recognize that um, the folks we're working with have usually more going on than just the medical side of things. Um, and so my role is to just provide as much support um, in whatever way the patient and family needs um, as they're kind of working through this process. And then the second sort of side of my role is um, just to make sure that people are connected to all the services that they need or want, um, whether that's things that we can provide directly from Hospice of the Piedmont or um, sometimes more community type resources that sometimes people need to get connected to. And so that is um, part of my role is just to kind of be a connector and make sure that all those pieces are in place that need to be. Sure, I appreciate that. So when you talk about community resources, what are the sort of the normal type community resources that you might help connect patients and families to in our community? So it's certainly different for every patient, but just some examples would be um, maybe helping people get connected to like a Meals on Wheels program or other sort of food or nutrition related needs. Um, maybe um, folks need help putting advanced directives in place, um, a living will, healthcare power of attorney, those types of needs. Um, and I would work to sort of facilitate that process, um, helping people navigate. Um, maybe they need to look at moving to a different care setting, such as a nursing facility, um, helping them through that process or possibly getting more care um, into their own home setting and kind of securing additional folks to help out with that. Right. Um, so when, let's go back in just a moment for just a moment and talk about the emotional support consideration. Um, you know, we, we can all appreciate that. I think that um, living with a life limiting illness is complicated for everybody, everybody around the patient, not just for the patient themselves, but their family. So talk a little bit about what that emotional support might actually look like. And um, let's, let's walk through some of those um, considerations if we could. Sure. So um, first of all, I'll just say that, all, you know, everything I do looks very different depending on the specific patient and family. Um, we meet people at all different points in their illness. People have different lengths of stay with us. So some patients and families I may work with for a very short time and others for months. Um, and so it, everything we do is just very tailored to their specific situation. But I think the emotional support component of what I do um, really kind of just starts with 
opening the door to um, letting them know there's a this is a safe space for them to share um, whatever they're feeling and thinking during this time, normalizing that, um, letting them know that whatever they're feeling during this time is probably um, quite normal. There's no right or wrong way to, um, to feel or to respond. Um, and so just sort of creating that space. Um, and you know, it may seem a little counterintuitive, but I think even though we are strangers in a sense coming into their homes, I think often um, it's a little easier for people to open up about what they're experiencing to a stranger or to at least, you know, not a family member who's um, kind of very wrapped up in the situation and emotionally attached. Um, and so it really just starts there, just sort of me coming in and letting them know that um, we are open to having these conversations that, like you mentioned, conversations about illness and death and dying are not um, ones that we tend to have very well or very often just culturally. And so um, just letting folks know that we um, are folks that they can talk to about um, what they're going through. Sure. So interesting you mentioned, you know, when, when, when we think about, and this is something that I explored with uh, your team member, Joanne Scott, in our very first installment of Conversations in Care just a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we generally would not think of, you know, as, as individuals, we know that our homes are incredibly sacred places. And, you know, the thought of just inviting someone into our home, even in the absence of, you know, uh, uh, um, of a significant illness or when perhaps our, our family may be functioning very differently, perhaps even not at its best functionality um, um, on any given day. Inviting a stranger into the house is, is you know, it, for some people that may be a really, that may be a very fearful thing, right? So it's interesting that you cite um, that it, oftentimes it's easier for people to sort of engage sometimes with a stranger about these really intimate details um, or personal details of their lives. Why do you think that is? I mean, why is that? I think it could be for a few reasons, and certainly that may not be the case for every patient or family, but um, I think a lot of times, um, like I said, we uh, they know that we are not going to be uncomfortable with talking about sort of the nitty gritty of this process for them um, and what, um, you know, what their end of life process may look like. Um, and so they know that they can trust us with those conversations. Um, I think also sometimes, um, you know, and for families, this is an, an emotional situation for them. There's all kinds of different feelings attached to what this family is going through. And often it's just overwhelming with so much going on that they can't even wrap their head around our process. Um, and so I think we are able to come in just as an objective party, um, someone who certainly cares about them, but is not emotionally attached to or involved with them and their family. Um, and so we can kind of just help focus the conversation a bit. And um, it's almost like, you know, the expression can't see the forest for the trees. Um, there's just so much going on that um, 
they aren't able to sort of zoom out and see the big picture and we're able to to help them do that that's interesting so um when when you begin working with patients and families you know we we, we talk a lot about in our organization needs wants and priorities and so when you're first meeting a patient and their family wherever they are and i think it's important for us to sort of clarify that a little bit that might mean you know a lot of different things that's a physical location that's a spiritual um you know mindset that's an emotional mindset that's uh you know it, it's we exist on many different planes i think is, sure. is i think an important thing for for folks who are watching this to know that we understand um, as an organization but you know as you're beginning to formulate these needs wants or helping patients understand and even articulate what their needs wants and priorities are you know are you also identifying what their support structure actually looks like? I mean, it sounds like that's part of what you're doing, but I'm just curious for those who are watching, if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So anytime um, I'm first meeting a patient and family as I'm getting to know them, that is a big part of what I try to do is identify what strengths and resources already exist within that patient and family, whether that's internal strengths and, you know, past experiences they can kind of draw on uh, to help them through this time period, or if it's uh, more tangible resources, um, different family members who could step in to um, help out with their care, um, you know, tapping into maybe a faith community, those kinds of things. And so that those are all things that we really try to um, seek out and find out about when we're first getting to know a patient and family. And um, I would say that that is something that happens um, in a first conversation as I'm getting to know them, kind of an initial assessment, but then also um, is an ongoing assessment as well, because, you know, you talked about, you know, needs and wants and priorities that may be um, one thing on your one set of things the first time I meet a patient and family, but that those things often change over time, especially depending on how um, long the time period is that I'm working with them. Mm. Do you oftentimes see that that is in fact the case that that a that a patient or family's needs, wants, and priorities at that initial meeting that you have with them tend to to change, maybe even from day to day or week to week or month to month or could be year to year. I mean, people stay in hospice services for a variety of different lengths of time, as you've alluded. But how do you how do you see that sort of change over time? Yeah, so um, it really just depends, I think, and it may not necessarily change, but just for instance, you know, I sort of talked about those two um, different sides to my role. And so maybe when I first meet a patient, I am helping them focus more on the resources side of things, helping them to get the care that they need put in place. Um, that's a very immediate need. But then once that need is met and you know we feel like there's a sustainable plan in place for that um, then perhaps it's time to sort of move on to um, focusing on the other side of things so talking with them more about how they're feeling about this um, you know this time and you know you mentioned 
talking about fears. And so, you know, maybe what are some of their fears, what's most on their mind right now? And those may be less tangible converse, you know, less tangible resources that we're talking about at that point. Yeah. So let's expound on that just a little bit. Um, you know, this is a conversation about conquering fear, right? And we've mentioned fear a couple of times. And so how do you begin, you know, I, I, in my mind, um, you know, I think a lot about um, fears that we have as individuals. And um, a lot of times we're, we're really seeking the empowerment, which is also something that we talk about a lot as an organization. We're seeking an, a, a sense of empowerment to be able to overcome those fears. And so um, are, are there strategies that you work with patients and families on? And, you know, are, are those really big goals or are they sort of smaller goals or how, how do you even approach that? I mean, that, that seems really large. Yeah, it, um, when you say it like that, it, it certainly does. And I think certainly for patients and families, it can just even that conversation can feel very overwhelming. Um, but I think, first of all, what I would try to do um, is just validate that it is perfectly normal to feel afraid. We wouldn't be human if we didn't have some of those you know, feelings of fear or anxiety or sadness, um, especially at a time when someone's facing the end of their life. Um, and so first of all, just letting folks know that that is normal and valid. Um, and then um, just sort of beginning to walk with them through that and sort of creating space for them to talk about that or process that in whatever way they need to. I'm never going to worse uh, anyone to have a conversation they're not ready to have or don't want to have but um yeah just sort of creating that space um and you know there are lots of different types of fears that come along um with this time in people's lives i think a lot of people are um maybe most uh, most often just afraid of the unknown. They've never been through this before, so um, not knowing what to expect. Um, but then, you know, some more spe specific things like the fear of physical suffering or the fear of losing their independence or becoming a burden on their families who are caring for them. Um, all of those things are, as I said, very normal. And so there's not um, you know, I don't have a magic wand to fix those things, but what we can say is, you know, we, even though you aren't doing, this is the first time you've done this. It's not the first time we've done this. We do this walk with family families through this every day and, um, that we are, you know, here to sort of hopefully help those things become less scary as time goes on. So this might seem a real simple question, but for those who, who might be watching, might be listening to this later, um, in your experience, when you begin to have these conversations, and we, I think we've already alluded to a little bit about this, but perhaps you could expound upon it a little bit more, um, is do you, do you have a, do you observe, um, you know, you sort of have a really unique, we as an organization and you as part of a care team have a re really unique vantage point as we are um, working with um, patients and families during a very difficult time in their lives. Um, when you begin these conversations and help normalize them, do you, do you, are you sort of able to watch 
sort of this alleviation of of fear and 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 help and and do they then gain a sense of maybe even confidence certainly relief i mean it would seem that way based on what you're describing to me absolutely um you know one of the things that i make sure to say to every patient and family um, especially the first time i meet them but also ongoing is just to never hesitate to pick up the phone and call us that we are always available there's no such thing as a silly question um, and so that simple reassurance i think goes a really long way into that sense of relief um, that you know maybe they've been trying to care for this person without any backup or support for a very long time and so and now we are here and we're the backup and um, are just a phone call away. Um, so even just knowing that is um, goes a long way in helping people feel more confident, just knowing they're not alone anymore. Um, and then also just giving people, you know, other tools, whether it be um, helping to teach a caregiver how to, you know, care for a patient who's spending all of their time in the bed now or um, you know, just just little tips and tricks that we know as professionals, having done this work for a long time, um, that we can then pass on to families um, just really makes a big difference for them. So it sounds like maybe the, um, the relief actually comes from a couple different places. It comes from both the normalization of these thoughts, if not fears, that they may be having that, helps them understand that they're not irrational, they're perfectly normal. But, but more so, it, it begins to help them understand that there's this supportive structure, right, that we're bringing uh, to them as part of a team, which I wanna talk a little bit about too, because um, you do work as part of a multidisciplinary um, uh, team of, of professionals. Um, it sounds like that, that sort of relief comes from a few different angles where you're concerned. It's, um, about the community resources, it's about the emotional support, but then it's also about the rest of the support that you bring as a member of a dynamic team. Um, and so, you know, in thinking about working in a team, might you talk a little bit about what that's like and what that looks like and how you actually, you know, work together um, as or, or work as part of a team for the benefit of, of the patient and their family? Sure. So, um... Being a part of the team is one of my favorite parts about working um, for a hospice organization. Um, when I think about the team that I work on, I think about a group of people who um, just completely trust one another and who completely respect the gifts and skills that we each bring to the table. We kind of each have um, a, a specific piece that we bring to kind of form the whole picture um, and always with, um, you know, the best interests of the patient and family at the forefront um, and how, how best, how can we best serve them? Um, and I also think about a group of people who is just in constant communication, whether that's, um, you know, at our weekly team meetings, I think Joanne mentioned, um, we talk about our patients every week in sort of a more formal way at a team meeting, but then also in between those meetings, um, we are constantly on the phone to each other. Um, maybe I'm in the home with a patient and they raise a question that is more uh, suited for a nurse. And so I'll say, I don't know the answer to that, but let me 
call your nurse and, and get that answer for you. Um, on the flip side, maybe a nurse is in a patient's home and there is a question that they think maybe I could help with and the nurse is on the phone to me saying, you know, what do you think about this? Or could you stop by to visit this patient? Um, so we certainly um, have each other on speed dial if that's, I don't know if that's really still a thing, but um, just always in communication um, because that is absolutely what's best for the patients is for us to always be working together. You know, what's so interesting about that to me, Caroline, is, it, is you're, you're describing a support structure within a support structure, right? Yes. Um, I mean, that's pretty, um, that's a pretty powerful concept, I think, for people to think about, um, that um, the, the patient has a support structure perhaps within their family or the resources that we're able to connect them with, either through our own organization or through other partners that we might work with. Um, but then, but then at the same time, um, each of the other members of the care team that's caring for this one individual and in this in their family also has an interconnected support structure too to each other. I mean, that's that's a pretty powerful um, description, I think, of of the model of care that I think you've articulated. I mean, it's really how it sounds to me. Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts about that, but that's certainly how it sounds to me. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I do think it's powerful. And I think the patients and families uh, recognize that, you know, if I am in someone's home and am immediately on the phone with their nurse or their chaplain, um, people, I think, are very impressed by that, frankly, and just reassured by that, you know, in a lot of the rest of the healthcare system, um, it you call and leave a message and takes hours to get a call back and that when they kind of realize that's not how we operate, it's um, a really big uh, relief and reassurance to them. That's, that's wonderful. So, you know, going back just a couple steps, if we might just conjures a thought in my head, um, you know, I think about my own family, right. Um, and, and how, um, you know, wonderful they are, but how quirky we all might be. Um, and I suspect everybody's families are a little like that. I don't, I don't think I'm unique in that regard. Nope. Um, but, you know, oftentimes is the case when, when you might engage with a patient or family, you've got a core group of people who are, who are thinking one way and a core group of people who are thinking another way. And, and your work, you're beginning to work with the patient and you're beginning to think about needs, wants, and priorities. And how do you bring, how do you bridge that, what, what others might call disconnect or discord or even dysfunction, um, but, but it's sort of a normal part of, of family uh, dynamics. Um, and so how do, how do you bridge that? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a normal part of family dynamics. And then especially anytime we are under stress or, um, you know, a, a time of change, anything that may have otherwise be sort of kept under the surface suddenly starts to sort of bubble up because um, we just don't have the, the resources to kind of keep that all in anymore. Um, and so I think there's a couple of things that I tend to do in those situations with families. Um, first is just to um, try to refocus or keep focused on the patient and the patient's goals and priorities. Um, 
and sort of refocus the family to help them remember that we are all here because we care about this person. You know, I and our team, we care about them as professionals and, and then their family, you know, cares about them and loves them as a, a family member and important part of their life. Um, and just sort of taking a moment to recognize that because almost always everyone can agree on that. Um, that, that that is maybe the only thing we have in common here, but it is a really important um, sort of central focus for everyone. Um, and just try to start from there rather than starting from um, the disagreement, whatever that might be. Um, and then secondly, I think it's really important um, often in families to sort of, you know, just listen to what everyone has to say, make sure they feel heard, because that often uh, goes a long way to sort of um, calm the tension. Um, and also just recognize and remind them that we are all going through, a, or they, all the family members are maybe going through a common experience. They are starting to grieve a loved one. Um, so that's the same experience, but everyone reacts to grief or any other kind of stress um, in different ways. And that's okay, just because one person is maybe kind of withdrawing, not engaging very much. Um, another person may be becoming more demonstrative, you know, very em overtly emotional. Um, and that's all okay, because we're all individuals. We all have different ways of coping with challenges in life. And so that certainly doesn't change um, when it comes to dealing with a loss or a death. And so just making sure people understand that, that just because we have differing ways of dealing with it doesn't mean that one is more right than another. Sure. So you mentioned emotional consideration. We talked a lot about emotional consideration. And you talked a little bit about grief and, you know, e emotion is really a, a sort of a catch-all for a lot of different expressions of feeling, right? Um, I mean, there's certainly sadness. You've touched on a little bit of grief, which we often, you know, connotate to, to mean uh, to have a direct correlation to, to sadness. But there are other emotions that people experience too. You know, there, there, is, there is happiness. And we're talking about um, we are talking about conquering fear. We're talking about considerations of getting older and we're talking about concepts related to death and dying and end of life. Um, and, and I think we are oftentimes, we oftentimes may have a bent towards thinking that those are all sad emotions. And while there are certainly elements of that, that are, um, that are incredibly sad, it's very sad to lose someone that we love. There are other emotions that happen with, within families. I mean, might you talk just a little bit about that? Sure. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, like I said earlier, there's no right or wrong way to do this. There's never a right or wrong way to feel in any um, situation. Everyone's entitled to how they're feeling at any given moment. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of times um, when we meet patients and families, this is just a very precious time for people. Um, and they come to really value this time that they have being together. Often there's a lot of um, sharing old stories and memories and inside jokes and laughing. 
Um, and that is, you know, could be in the same breath as, um, you know, maybe even becoming tearful or crying over the fact that we are, you know, losing this person. Um, and so all those things can coexist um, even in the same moment. And we, um, we get to witness that. And it's, um, it's a pretty um, beautiful thing, to be honest, to, to be able to just see, you know, people don't stop, become, stop being human just because they are a hospice patient. Um, and so we, we get to sort of see the range of that humanity being in their homes with them. Do you often find that those emotions you mentioned sort of laughing and crying all at one time or in one, in one um, you know, series of discussions um, with families, do, do, do they find that that's also empowering? It seems odd that we might even equate those, but it, it sounds as though from, from what you're saying that, that they might find great comfort and empowerment in that. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it makes me think of um, when you spoke with Joey and recently about how um, we try to um, remind people that or, you know, treat people as people, not as patients or as a medical diagnosis. And so um, I think a lot of times for people dealing with healthcare professionals, they are used to sort of being just in that patient category. Um but once they kind of realize that we, our goal is really to just be humans meeting other humans wherever they are, it sort of gives them that permission and um, absolutely is empowering just to you know, continue living their life um, in whatever way that looks like at, at this moment. Thank you for joining us for part one of our discussion, Conversations Can Care, Conquering Fears Between Trent and Caroline. We hope you have found this conversation both engaging and informative as Caroline unpacked the emotional concerns and family dynamics the social worker navigates with hospice care. Join us next time as we conclude this conversation, exploring the spiritual considerations present at the end of life. Until then, I'm Ryan Biagini, and this has been the E-Series.